Hi, welcome to the ZMM Podcast. I'm Hokyu Aronson, and whether you're coming to us through the Zen Mountain Monastery website, or via iTunes, or any other podcast delivery system, we're happy to have you with us. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know we like to use the forum to get better acquainted or reacquainted with some of the guest teachers who visit Zen Mountain Monastery or the Zen Center of New York City to lead retreats throughout the year. We also take the opportunity from time to time to chat with one of our own teachers about a program they're leading or just to discuss a topic of interest to the Sangha. Today we're speaking with none other than our own Zuise Goddard for a little bit of both. She'll be leading a retreat next month called Taming the Mind, Shantideva's teaching on guarding introspection. That'll run here at the monastery from April 21st to 23rd, 2017, and as you'll hear once we start discussing it, this approach with Shantideva as our guide will be of interest to anyone looking to refine their meditation practice with timeless wisdom and direction from one of the great masters of the Buddhist tradition. So, a little about our guest who's walked up one flight of stairs to join me today. Uh, Zuise was born in Mexico City and moved to the U.S. when she was 18, studying literature at the University of Pennsylvania. She first came to Zen Mountain Monastery just a year after graduating and found her calling in the rhythms and ritual of monastic life. She ordained in 2001 and spent 14 years as a monastic before returning to lay life. That shift had little impact on her relationship with the practice or the Sangha as she's continued her role as Director of Operations at Dharma Communications the monastery's outreach organization. She also moved into a teaching role when in 2014, Shugen Sensei recognized her as a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. She makes her home just minutes away from the monastery's gates in Mount Tremper, New York, with her partner of many years. Hi, Zuisei. Hello. Uh, so the retreat description for Taming the Mind, uh, it makes it clear that we're looking at how to guard our minds against the kind of erosive or corrosive behaviors that we've been accumulating over the course of our lifetimes or perhaps longer. Um, it sounds like this would be anything from garden variety distractedness to compulsive storytelling where we spend a lot of time on the, on the cushion or off, rehashing stories to ourselves about where we fit in the world and how to rank all the people and things we come in contact with. And I love that you've chosen Shantideva as our principal guide in this journey. So first I'd like to back up a second and um, let's talk about who exactly was Shantideva and where does he fit in um, along the development of Buddhism in India and beyond? Well, Shantideva was an 8th century Buddhist uh, monastic and scholar, you could say teacher, who is better known for the way of the bodhisattva, or it's also translated as the, the guide to a bodhisattva's way of life. And he was said to be a student of Nagarjuna, not d directly that he followed the school of Nagarjuna, the Madhyamika school. And um, because the way the way the way of the bodhisattva is framed, you know, he touches on a number of teachings that are really fundamental to Buddhism from the six paramitas, just the fact that he is uh, using the word mindfulness and he uses a very powerful image of the wild elephant that is being tamed through the rope of mindfulness and the hook of alertness. He understood very well 
And he himself said at the beginning of the teaching that he wasn't teaching anything new. It's just his, his poetic and very powerful way of speaking, you know, about the mind, about ethical conduct, about the need for good teaching, good companionship, he says, uh, that uh, I think had profound influence, especially in the Mahayana uh, teachings, and especially that chapter, the, t- the I believe is the ninth chapter on wisdom, or the tenth chapter, um, where he uh, actually very systematically goes through some of the teachings of the Madhyamaka school and it seems is also taking the opportunity to refute other teachings, Buddhist and non-Buddhists, that I'm guessing were prevalent you know, at the time. So there's actually not a lot written about him and there's in fact uh, conjecture that there were two Shantidevas, though the second one is... Um, seems to be the one who lived in the 8th century and went to Nalanda University. And even the story of how he uh, came to teach there, you know, is shrouded in a kind of mysticism. Um, But I have always found his particular way of teaching extremely powerful. And I think is the kind of teaching that you either love or hate. You relate to right away or Mm -hmm. it takes you a while to, to enter because he can be pretty fire and brimstone at times Mm -hmm. and his imagery of hell and death approaching you know it's it's definitely not for the (laughs) faint at heart yeah i mean he speaks of um the uh, of kind of getting off track and losing one's uh losing that rope that um that binds us to our attention as falling into a hell realm um but of course that's kind of skillful means in itself to to remind us that there can be um, grave consequences to not being mindful, right? Right. He doesn't pull any punches. I mean, he's saying you don't have much time. In fact, you don't mm-hmm. know how much time you have, so don't waste it. Mm-hmm. And there's also the other side, you know, in the beginning where he makes these great offerings, you know, of everything... Um, wondrous and beautiful an offering of himself you know Mm. for the sake of all the buddhas and bodhisattvas for the sake of his own enlightenment so it's not he's not just out to scare you Mm. but he's definitely out to shake you from your complacency Mm -hmm. i think yeah that term mindfulness um is do you think he was using the term sati that we that we hear you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I would have to check in the the translation that I, I have a couple of translations, and I believe both come from a Tibetan text. Oh. And so, um, so I don't know. Uh-huh. Though the, huh, though the translation that I do have does use, there, there is actually that phrase mm-hmm. of taming, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the mind, the, the wild elephant with the rope of mindfulness but that is right. the english translation right. so i, I well i was know. remembering recently in a talk shugen sensei was pointing out that the word sati is actually remembering we translate it as mindfulness what what would you say is the connection between remembering um i remember he said that the buddha taught this as remembering everything that came before mm-hmm. which is really a departure in a way from from the kind of mindfulness that we generally think of, which is just 
an awareness of the thing that is right before us. What would, what would you say is the connection between mindfulness and remembering? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've seen it translated as remembering or uh, the ability to keep an object in mind. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's Bhante Gunaratana, Bhante Gunaratana, who says that there's three factors of awareness that you need. The first is equanimity, which is a balancing factor. The second is concentration, which is a sharpening factor. And the third is mindfulness, which is Mm. a seeing factor. Mm. And as I'm sure you know, right mindfulness is the seventh factor in the Eightfold Path just before concentration. And so the way that I understand mindfulness is that concentration is not enough. Concentration is, is the, the ability to focus on an object. But you need to know what it is that you are focusing on. And so in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Buddha describes, you know, one who's taking a short breath knows that she's taking a short breath. If it's a long breath, she knows it's a long breath. If you're walking, you know that you're walking. If you're sitting, you know that you're sitting. And I have before told the story about my first session here. I was assigned to work in the garden mm. and I had a lot of energy. I was very excited. It was actually my first full week of session. I had done a weekend before. And I, I had been sitting for a couple of days by that point and I was assigned to work in the garden and Kaijun, who was our gardener at the time, assigned me to pull weeds from a a bed of carrots. Mm-hmm. Now I had never worked in a garden before, but I thought, you know, this can't be too hard. <laughs> and I approached it as I pretty much approached anything. I was going to be the best, I was going to be the fastest, and I was just going to show her how quickly and focused I could work. And I had a lot of energy. <laughs> so I put my head down and I just started, you know, pulling weeds as fast as I could. And I remember at a certain point a more awake part of me this little voice said these weeds look awfully straight but I was too doing too well you know to stop so I just brushed the thought aside and I just kept going at the end of the work period I very proudly showed her my work I had weeded the entire bed Mm -hmm. and she had a conniption because I had pulled the entire bed of carrots (laughs) and uh, so I very single-mindedly and concentratedly did my work with zero mindfulness, zero awareness Mm. of what was actually happening, you Mm. know, what was in front of me. And so um, in in a way you could could say, and I, this is not certainly the, the way that Shugen Sensei alluded to it, but that that remembering is what it is that you're supposed to be paying attention to. Right. And pairing it with that single-minded focus. Right. Well, you brought your concentration to bear, but mindfulness would be a, a bigger picture, in a sense. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and mindfulness has also uh, three aspects to it. One is alertness. You know, you need, you can't be dull if you're sure. going to be mindful, right? The other is resolve. You need to have that determination to stay present. And the third is uh, appropriate attention. Now in the sutras, appropriate attention uh, 
um, refer specifically to knowing the Four Noble Truths, to knowing the truth of suffering, its origin, its cessation, you know, and mm. the path. But you could also say in a larger, broader context that it's appropriate attention, that it is attention appropriate to the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the one without the other can become, in fact, very lopsided. Mm-hmm. And now pulling a bed of carrots is one thing. You know, the consequences are not that dire. But the consequences of being mindless, and perhaps with great focus, mm-hmm. we can see everywhere. I mean, you can, you can kill with a very focused mind, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, the Buddha never intended, I don't think, for mindfulness to be extracted from the the totality of the eightfold path it's a it's a an integral factor mm-hmm. of of the whole picture you mm-hmm. could say mm-hmm. um so uh, with shantideva's teaching it's pretty clear when you're reading him that um he's speaking to probably monastics at nalanda that's the way that i've always understood it and there's a there's really a rigor to what he's recommending and it's wonderful because it's it's very practical advice um and it's very direct it kind of speaks like right over the centuries to um to challenges one might have in maintaining their um maintaining their practice and maintaining their uh their awareness and their um their and and being diligent on it um but what would you say it is about his teachings that kind of transcend the walls of the monastery it can be hard enough to maintain that in a space that's created um for us to practice essentially but for those of us living and working you know beyond the walls of, of the monastery well, I think very fundamentally, he is saying death is coming mm-hmm. sooner or later. So again, both pointing to the uniqueness and the gift that it is to have a human life and human consciousness and therefore the opportunity to awaken, that he's saying, you know, don't waste this time, as I mentioned before. He's also saying what is needed. You know, he mm. is saying, yes, you need mindfulness and you need that hard work. He's also saying you need devotion. Mm-hmm. You need a good teacher. You need to practice the six perfections, the, the way the Mahayana phrases them, the six paramitas of generosity, of ethical principles or moral principles, the sila, mm-hmm. patience, um, zeal or effort, vigor, enthusiasm for the practice, concentration, and wisdom, paramita, mm. uh, um, prajna, sorry, prajna paramita. Mm. And so he's, he's laying out through the, the way of the bodhisattva, he's basically saying, look at all of your life, because all of it needs to be um, examined, needs to be carefully um, not just looked at but taken care of i Mm. think he's he's both in his um, beautiful descriptions of these offerings that he makes at the beginning he's he's both saying he's readying his mind 
you know, to both accept and offer the teachings in the way that he can. But he's also saying that in itself is the path. It is that mm-hmm. mind of, of surrender, if you will, that is, that is, there's something so much larger and vaster than me, you know, my, myself. And so that's, you know, whether you're practicing in a monastery or practicing at home, that is still true. And he mm-hmm. makes me think of um, a teacher that I would have loved to meet, uh, Deepa Ma, mm-hmm. the Bangladeshi teacher, uh, teacher of Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, um, Joseph Goldstein, among many others, who was a lay teacher. Yeah. She was never ordained. She wanted to, but she was married. Her husband didn't want her to, to practice even. So she had to wait until he died. And she started practicing very late in life. And from the few accounts that we have of her teaching, she was an extraordinary teacher. And her students always complained to her, saying, you know, my life is too busy. I don't mm-hmm. have time mm-hmm. to practice. And she would say, do you have time to take a breath? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Be mindful right then, you know, in that moment. And she was also, at the same time, she was uncompromising. Yeah. I mean, I, I love a story that uh, Joseph Goldstein says that she said to him, sit for two days. And knowing her, he knew she meant sit for two days straight. Yeah, wasn't a metaphor. No. It wasn't like sit a no, lot it's for two days. sit two days in samadhi, which yeah. apparently she could do with great ease. And he said, I can't do that. And her response was just like, don't be lazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, she, was, well. she, she would say, you know, be mindful as you pull that one weed. But every inch of the universe, every molecule is in that pulling, in yeah. that weed. Yeah. And it, again, it sounds like that's how she lived her life. Yeah. Whether she was taking care of her grandson or she was, you know, hanging the laundry or she was teaching in her tiny little apartment in Mm -hmm. Calcutta, I believe. Mm -hmm. Deva says, We can never take and turn aside the outer course of things, but only seize and discipline the mind itself. And what is there remaining to be curbed? So he's saying, you know, once you discipline the mind, it takes care of of everything else, in a sense. Um, In the classic Zen teachings, um, and even contemporary 20th century, at least, let's say, we don't encounter the term mindfulness um, as though, I mean, of course, there's an emphasis on concentration, but why do you think that the Zen teachings put so much emphasis on on, on this kind of direct pointing that made it seem as, as though mindfulness was just a given? Well, I wonder because if it is because in the in the context in which they were training, it was. Mm-hmm. You know, although a lot of the the teachings, for example, on the four jhanas and beyond, the deep meditative states that the Buddha described were, in a sense, the steps just before his enlightenment. Zen mm-hmm. doesn't speak about them either, and mm-hmm. yet this the, these experiences happen you mm-hmm. know in in our meditation and so you know the 
the word on the street, if you will, uh, is that uh, so much of Zen was a reaction to the great complexity and detail of the the Theravada teachings and okay. the endless right. lists and the very methodical analytical approach to the mind that you know starting with China and then in Japan the 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 cutting method if you will of just the, going to the pith of realizing this this realizing this moment realizing uh, not only self-nature, but the nature of all things through a word, through a sound, through a hit. Um, it, it, it does feel to me like it was, it was kind of like a funnel. Mm -hmm. So all because when you read Dogen, for example, mm -hmm. you see that he was steeped in the sutras. Right. He was steep in the Madhyamika teachings and Nagarjuna. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that he wasn't studying it. Right. It's just almost as if everything got funneled and condensed into well, and he actually does um, refer to some more of these these teachings as sutras, especially. But it's almost as if, especially with Cohen's study, everything got condensed to the realization, yeah. the 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 result, if you will, of of all of that study. And so that was my training for right. many many years, and I just found naturally that as I you know, evolved a little bit as a practitioner, I became drawn to these earlier teachings. All of a sudden, I could read them, mm. and I wanted to read them. I am fascinated by the fact that the Buddha and all those who followed after him, that there's really no state of mind or of being that you can experience that hasn't been cataloged by someone. Yeah. No affliction that someone hasn't experienced and said, here's the antidote for it. So really, if at any point you're having trouble with your practice, you can just go to the sutras and know that somebody was there, stuck, and figured out a way to unstick themselves, and this is how they did it. Yeah. Tibetan um, Buddhists also speak about training the mind, right, mm -hmm. very deliberately, mm -hmm. and using, again, you know, conduct and images and visualizations and mantras so i think you know a lot of it was just different different styles you know of, of the different schools but i don't believe that the teachings are not contained in zen it's just that they're not always spoken of explicitly yeah yeah and also it might be another matter of what we have translated you know so Correct. far for us from the tradition um so again, the program we're talking about is called Taming the Mind, and if you want to go further into it than what we've discussed today, you'll just have to join us here on the weekend of April 21st to 23rd. But you can check out the actual description for the retreat on the monastery's website, zmm.mro.org, and you'll find links to our entire summer programming there as well, uh, which recently went online. Once again, thanks for listening to the ZMM podcast. And until next time, take good care.